Welcome to the Decipher podcast. My guest today is Rihanna Pfefferkorn from Stanford's Center for the Internet and Society. Rihanna, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I was at Enigma a couple weeks ago, as you were, and I got to see your panel, which I think was the first one of the conference, if I'm not mistaken, on encrypted messaging. And, you know, there, there was a lot of topics in there, but you, I think, were the first one that mentioned this bill that was coming out and had not been publicized at the time, which is now called the Earn It Act. Um, and I remember specifically you mentioning this is going to be a problem for encrypted messaging vendors. So can you give us a little bit of background on what this bill is and kind of what it means for technology vendors, and then we'll maybe move on to the enterprise side of it. Sure. So the so-called Earn It Act bill is something that's still in the works. There hasn't been an official draft introduced in Congress yet, but there's been an early discussion draft that's been leaked uh, to the press and then from the press to the public. And the idea there seems to be to follow in the heels of the SESTA-FOSTA bill that was passed into law a couple of years ago, which took away the immunity that platforms mostly enjoy against civil litigation, civil claims, and uh, state law criminal cases brought over what their users say and do on the platform. And that law that provides that immunity is called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of 1996. So that immunity had been standing in place for you know, a couple of decades, and was important to the growth of the internet and to the platforms that we know today, especially social media platforms. But really, any website that has a comment section, online newspapers that have comment sections for readers, etc., um, depend upon the immunity that they enjoy against civil litigation and against criminal prosecution at the state level over what their users say. Um, there's no bar to federal government action, such as by the Department of Justice, if there are any criminal violations of law under, under federal law on, on, on these platforms. Um, the platforms are not immunized against that. However, what we saw with the SESTA-FOSTA bill a couple of years ago was to take away, uh, just to carve out an area from this immunity and allow liability, allow lawsuits um, when it came to sex trafficking. And so what this bill would do would be something similar to that, kind of similar to that, in terms of taking away Section 230 immunity, the guaranteed 230 immunity, with regard to child sex abuse material online, um, previously referred to as child porn, although that's no longer the preferred nomenclature. Um, and why this bill is potentially so dangerous is because unlike the SESTA-FOSTA bill, which just said you lose the immunity full stop when it comes to uh, sex trafficking activities on your platform, this instead conditions keeping the immunity, earning the immunity in the parlance of the short title of the bill, on compliance with a TBD set of best practices that would be uh, recommended by a group of people from uh, law enforcement, some from industry, some computer science experts, you basically uh, 10 or 15 people on this commission that would be appointed without any sort of accountability, any sort of public input to decide upon best practices that if platforms or any online company, including messaging apps, abide by those best practices, then they will be guaranteed to keep 
the immunity, uh, so long as they certify that they are abiding by those best practices. Whereas if they do not abide by that set of best practices, which again would not be formal rules, would not be an actual law enacted by Congress, they are on their own. They are opening themselves up to potential, uh, potentially crushing liability uh, with regard to uh, child sexual abuse material on their services. And as you said, the, the best practices are TBD. We don't have any idea really what they would be, and the the makeup of this this uh, committee it's kind of spelled out in the bill like who might be on it, and the attorney general has a lot to do with it, has a lot to say with with who's on it. But it, do you have any kind of insight into what might be in this best practice list? My fear is that the best practices would be a stalking horse for outlawing end-to-end encryption, effectively, and mandating some kind of proactive monitoring and filtering that would be required in a way that raises a lot of kind of constitutional problems around speech, around privacy, if it were basically an unelected group of people making an edict that has basically the force of law, given the potential liability exposure for noncompliance. So we don't know exactly what those best practices would look like, but it seems likely, given this administration, given that we have an attorney general who has roundly denounced encryption, Mm -hmm. uh, that there would be either best practices that specifically say somehow that using end-to-end encryption is not a best practice is to be frowned upon, or if there were anything that either refused to vociferously condemn encryption or that dared to uh, recommend encryption as a, as a best practice for respecting privacy or security, um, that the attorney general who uh, currently has kind of up or down, thumbs up, thumbs down power over these recommended best practices could just say, I'm not going to to pass those along. Um, Right now, the bill, as we've seen it, would allow the AG to unilaterally just rewrite the guidelines as he so chooses, so long as he gives some reason for why he's doing so. And so any set of best practices that this unelected baseball team's worth of people might come up with, he could still just say, no, I'm going to write these other rules instead. We'll see if that kind of language stays in future versions of the draft as this continues to iterate, as I'm sure it will. But in any event, the fact that there would be some set of best practices on which liability or lack thereof is hinged um, creates a lot of space for mischief especially to the degree that we don't necessarily know whether those best practices would actually squarely have anything to do at all with the problem of combating child sexual exploitation online. Yeah. And as you point out in the very long and excellent post that you wrote about this, uh, I think last week, there's already existing laws that address essentially all of the concerns that this bill is trying to address in other ways. And it's just, it, as you said, I think a stalking, ho- a stalking horse or kind of a, a, a Hail Mary way around the encryption debate, even though, interestingly, the bill never even mentions the term encryption or backdoors or anything like that or exceptional access, any of the terms that we've come to you know, associate with the, the crypto debate. It's kind of a way around that by using uh, child exploitation material as you know, one of the four horsemen of the crypto apocalypse that we've all come to know and hate. That's right. You know, one of the fundamental bones that I have to pick with this bill is that 
There is already a comprehensive federal statutory scheme, as I discuss in that blog post, that says exactly what um, the kinds of providers that would be regulated under this uh, potential legislation already have to do when it comes to uh, reporting child sex abuse material that they come to find out about on their services. But this wouldn't just add to the list of those duties. If the idea here is that um, there isn't enough that's being done to combat this problem, well, then why not use an amendment to the bill that says, here's what providers have to do. Here's what Facebook has to do. Here's what Dropbox has to do, et cetera. Um, that at least would give us some ability to talk about this more openly, to know what it is that is being required, because it would be something that is concrete that we could dispute over. That would be in a congressional enactment by members of Congress who are in an election year, who are accountable. There would be some means of you know, public oversight at the least, and it would be directly on point to the purported problem here. Instead, there's this attempt to use what is currently a politically unpopular law, which is Section 230, and to just go after tech companies who are also politically unpopular nowadays and have this really roundabout way of imposing, potentially imposing best practices that, depending on what they are and what they look like, might actually not be something that Congress can constitutionally impose directly when it comes to uh, Fourth Amendment privacy rights when it comes to First Amendment speech rights. It's entirely possible that the idea here is not only to garner public support because tech companies in Section 230 are currently so unpopular, but also as a way of laundering mm -hmm. an, a mandate that could not be imposed directly due to constitutional concerns. And I know that all of these big tech companies that have uh, some sort of obligation to deal with this problem. You mentioned Facebook. Uh, I know Microsoft. A lot of these companies that have these platforms, they have teams devoted to identifying and removing this kind of content. It's a horrific job, but they all have teams that do it. So I'm wondering what this, you know, the authors of this bill think the companies are going to be able to do beyond that to, to address this problem. Right. It's not clear to me right now exactly where the gap is. There's been a series of reports in the New York Times about what companies are doing, um, how many reports they're making to Congress about what they find on their services. It seems like at least one sticking point mm -hmm. is that right now there is some effort at monitoring and scanning um, images, for example, that people are sharing with each other, that people are uploaded um, to this, that people are uploading. But if that's the issue, if they're not doing this enough, you know, it, it, it's, it's not clear to me exactly, and I'm not, you know, super familiar with where the child safety advocates come down on this, where the gap is, where the daylight is between what's already being done voluntarily in a lot of cases with these, with some of the, the major providers, and what else there is that they want yeah. uh, platforms to do. Certainly, it seems that one of the things that stimulated, I don't know if it originated the drafting of this bill or not, but Facebook's announcement last spring that they were moving forward with upping all of their messaging services to having the same end-to-end -end encryption by default that WhatsApp already has seems to have been a big stimulus behind this current outcry trying to make uh, messaging providers and their encryption the big problem previously um, until the Facebook announcement and really until last fall 
device encryption had been the big sticking point when it came to uh, the debate over encryption in the United States. That was where the focus had been. And it's really shifted in the last few months right. to focus on uh, service providers for, that have encrypted messaging services. And the idea there seems to be that if Facebook goes through with this plan, that's going to take away visibility into a lot of the content that they currently detect and report out at the rate of you know, millions of, of images and you know, pieces of, of data a year. So it may be that it's not even so much about requiring more, such as rather than not allowing platforms to do less. And that's where I think the end-to-end encryption thing comes from because uh, both a proactive duty to monitor, to filter, to scan, which again, services are already doing voluntarily in many cases, is incompatible with end-to-end encryption. Um, Being able to see data at all is incompatible with end-to-end encryption. That's not to say that that is the only way for this ever to get discovered. Um, Of course, people can report out material that they receive, even in end-to-end encrypted messages. If you're one end of a conversation, you can say, hey, I got this really sketchy content and and, and, then report that out. Um, And that, of course, is going to be one way that these platforms uh, find out about content on their services is from users reporting stuff that they receive or that they come across. So it almost looks maybe more like a preservation of the status quo to try and say, right now you are monitoring and scanning uh, in some cases proactively, in other cases relying just on reports that you receive, uh, maybe of, of images that other people on your platform come across. Right now, you don't have end-to-end encryption if you're yeah. Facebook by default across all of your services. You know, there's enough reporting as it is that's you know the the agency that's uh, the non-governmental, quasi-governmental agency that's tasked with receiving these reports is overwhelmed enough as it is with the millions of reports that they get from these services. So. It might also be an attempt to just say, look, we want to keep things the way that they are at present and not allow you to make further upgrades to the privacy and security of your services, which is the trend that we have been seeing across both devices and across cloud storage and across messaging and so forth as we recognize the importance um, both of security against hackers and cybercriminals and thieves and from platforms being responsive to demands to better respect users' privacy and keep their hands off users' data. Facebook seems like they're in a little bit of a bind here where they have come under attack for protecting uh, users' privacy inadequately and for you know looking at people's data. And so their response has been, okay, great, we're going to add end-to-end encrypted, end-to-end encryption by default across all of our services. And now the response seems to be, no, not like that. Protect user privacy, but not like that. It does seem like they're in a little bit of a no-win situation on that one. Yeah. Um, do you think? Do you have a sense that this this approach has a little bit to do with um, a lot of the attempts, the legislative attempts and policy attempts to address the device encryption uh, issue? That it seems like has you know Apple and Google and the other device makers have essentially, they've just gone ahead and done it, and there's not a lot that can be done about it, at, at least at the legislative level right now. Right. My view is that we live in a ubiquitously encrypted world, and everybody just needs to deal with it and learn how to rely on other data or find other signals in that data or find other means of trying to pursue the goal of catching bad guys um, and you know keeping people from yeah. being, you know, from having to be <laughs> you know, subject to all the sort of abuse that people often are online without trying to harm encryption. And 
you know, I have a lot of suspicion ultimately of the agenda that law enforcement may have here, which is if we have device encryption as one issue and we have end-to-end encryption for communications as another issue, it might be that we can keep seeing pressure on, regard, on, on both of those things. But if there's pressure on communications, maybe that makes device encryption look like a better alternative or vice versa. Um, because if you can move the ball forward on end-to-end encryption and getting some kind of mandate with regard to that, you can always come back later, you know, instead of saying, oh, we've given up on device encryption, you can always come back later um, and ask for that. Or conversely say, well, you know, maybe it would be less important for us to have the ability to see into encrypted communications if we have the ability to open up laptops and open up uh, cell phones that are, you know, encrypted uh, with regard to the files they're on and see if there's any evidence of those kinds of, of communications um, that we wouldn't necessarily need to be able yeah. to read it on the wire. Right. Do you, do you have any idea of whether, I mean, I mean, I know there's all kinds of technical experts on the Hill that, um, in especially in some of the uh, senator's offices that advise them on these issues. Do you have an, an idea of whether anybody, had any technical uh, experts, cryptographers, anybody has <laughs> advised the authors of this bill on this or had a look at it and said, this isn't really going to work? It doesn't really read like something at present that has had a lot of expert technical input. I do agree that there are members of staff um, in various Congress members' offices who have the kind of technical expertise that would be called upon. I think those people may be in kind of a bind here where, as you say, the bill doesn't mention encryption overtly anywhere right now. Uh, the bill already says, yeah. you know, we'll throw, we'll throw this community a bone by requiring a few people who are computer science or engineering experts experts to be on this commission, um, you know, kind of what more do you want there, right? But if even if you are a member of staff who has a lot of technical chops, it may be that you are still working for somebody who is your boss who may have a different agenda when it comes to um, what legislation should look like. So maybe you have the power to fend off the absolute worst ideas, but if your member says, I care about child safety and that's the end all be all. I don't want to hear this nonsense about, you know, cybersecurity uh, or greater, you know, impacts on the global internet. Then there may only be a limited amount that you can do because you're not the one who is in charge. The member is right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, what do you, what's your kind of confidence level of how likely this bill is to actually one, get introduced and then get passed in any kind of relative, you know, form that's uh, like what it is right now without any major modifications. I do not think that this bill right now, as it currently stands, has a chance of getting passed. But my fear is that it starts out in this really abysmal form that I've Describes some of the reasons why it's bad. Other organizations like EFF and the Center for Democracy and Technology and TechDirt have described why it's bad from other angles. So if those problems get fixed, then okay, you fix the worst problems. But it may be that all the things we're pointing out are just directing the drafters of this bill how to build a better mousetrap and get rid of the worst things, but you still end up with something that is fundamentally objectionable, but that I am afraid may have a lot of legs because, as said, there is 
a lot of bloodthirst right now for tech companies. There's a sense that they've gotten too big for their britches and that they just shouldn't get this presence that Congress has given them in the form of Section 230 anymore. Um, there is a lot of exhaustion, I think, with the experience of being on the internet in 2020. And so it may be that the idea here is, well, you know, we tried that immunity thing for a while and look what it got us. What if we try curtailing that immunity further like we did with SESTA-FOSTA, which was not exactly a raging success either, and uh, see where that gets us? And it might be that that kind of argument does have legs, especially in an election year where I think a lot of the members of Congress who are up for re-election may, or you know, trying to run for president may want to be able to go back to their constituents and say, look what I'm doing about how terrible big tech companies have become. Yeah, that does seem like an easy win in, in that regard if you're a member who's up for re-election. Yeah. Um, maybe the last thing I kind of wanted to, to get to was a point that you raised in, in your blog post, which I thought was really well done, was... Um, if you're a bad actor who's into this child exploitation uh, trafficking and you're using one of these platforms that's, say, Facebook or, or whatever it happens to be, and this law gets passed and they have to start following these best practices, you're just going to move to one of the underground forums or underground platforms that already exist and already thrive and will have will not be affected by this law whatsoever. And it doesn't seem like that's something that the authors of this bill have thought through very well. Right. And as I said earlier, Section 230 already does not immunize anybody covered by it from their own criminal offenses under federal law or from, you know, federal criminal violative speech that their users conduct. And so you have, you know, dark web sites out there that are devoted to child sex abuse material as it is. They already don't qualify for Section 230 immunity. This bill would not do anything to them. It's definitely not going to act as a stick to get them to fall in line. They're definitely not going to report all of the activities that are on there. This is their whole race on detra, right? And so, yep. you know, to the degree that there are people who are using Dropbox and Facebook to trade ch uh, child sex abuse material because that's pretty straightforward and easy, and they do. Um, I do foresee that they would just switch MO and get onto one of these other platforms that is out there that would not care about um, a bill that takes away an immunity that they already cannot avail themselves of. And so that gets back to a, an ongoing tension, I think, in the encryption debate, which is that there's always this messaging that uses the worst of the worst, terrorists. Now it's child sex abuse, um, you know, traitors. And you've mentioned yeah. the other, the four horsemen of the infocalypse overall. We're always talking about the worst of the worst, but overall, any change that we make with regard to the government's ability to surveil what we say and do, uh, whether it's online or offline, is largely going to affect the kind of low-hanging fruit, the average people. If average people uh, commit crimes, then they're going to take average amounts of uh, you know, protection for themselves, and they're going to tend to get caught. So in a world where Facebook is doing more in order to uh, comply with whatever set of best practices in order to retain its 230 immunity, um, that will ensnare the average people. But the thing about child sex abuse material uh, offenders is that they tend to be much more technologically savvy. And so whenever we talk about backdooring encryption or other measures to catch uh, criminals, we're talking about 
folks who already have the ability to find and use technologies that have been out there for decades when it comes to encrypting files. The technology is out there. It's not going to be put back in the bottle. So the most savvy people who are out there on these dark web forums trading tips with each other online to say, here's how to evade detection. Here's how to to configure your browser. Here's how to use encryption. Here's which software to use. Here's how to encrypt just a portion of your drive or your external hard drives, whatever. They're going to keep doing that. They're going to keep being able to trade those kinds of tips with each other. And so the worst of the worst are the ones who paradoxically are the most able to circumvent the kinds of measures that would get put in place. Um, And one thing that goes unspoken, I think, is that I'm really not sure whether it isn't ultimately satisfactory to law enforcement to be able to catch 80% of the people and admit that they're not necessarily going to catch like the remaining, you know, really savvy 5% or whatever it is. We heard a little bit of that in the past, I think from Rod Rosenstein when he was still um, in the government to say, you know, we're never going to be able to catch the most sophisticated criminals. And that's something that's not getting said here is that those folks will always have a means of disguising their activities. And in the meantime, we're talking about measures that would impair uh, the privacy, the speech rights, uh, and the, potentially the security of everybody without necessarily catching those worst of the worst. Yeah. And unfortunately, I think that's true. And it's true in a lot of criminal you know, categories or endeavors or however you want to say it. You know, as you said, the average criminals get caught. The, the truly professional, sophisticated ones usually don't. Uh, and this kind of uh, legislation is going to have a, a deleterious effect on most people and not not the worst offenders, unfortunately. So, um, Rihanna, I know you have to go. I know you have to run, but I really appreciate your time and helping us uh, kind of wade through all this and, and see what it means to everybody. So thanks very much for, for your time today. Thanks, Dennis. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. You too. Bye.